If you want to support the show, please visit our webpage, thebittersweetlife.net, and click the donation button. Additionally, if you're interested in sponsoring the program and reaching thousands of people all over the world, send us an email at bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at M-A-I-L dot com to get the conversation going. Thank you for all the ways you support us. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am in good company. I have author Jess Walter with me today. He is the author of the national bestseller, The Financial Lives of the Poets, the National Book Award finalist, The Zero, the Edgar Award-winning Citizen Vince, Land of the Blind, and the New York Times notable book, Over Tumbled Graves. Good grief, Jess. And his <laughs> uh, latest <laughs> book is called Beautiful Ruins. That's a lot of accolades. Thanks. Yeah, it's the only reason I do interviews is to hear my biography read out loud. Really, it makes you feel pretty important. Yeah, I'm that pathetic. Well, thank you for doing this. I just finished reading your book, Beautiful Ruins, mm, and thanks. I thought we should talk. It is set partly in Italy, which I suppose is part of the reason why I thought to put you on the podcast. But can you explain what the book is to the people who haven't read it yet? Oh, I can try. The, one of the hardest things about being an author is writing 100,000 words and then having to explain it in 14. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those novels that tells parallel stories. Um, I like to think of them as braided stories, like braided hair, you know, the way the stories come in and out together. But the main story takes place in 1963 in Italy in the Cinque Terre. It's about a, an actress who arrives there uh, from the set of Cleopatra and meets a young man named Pasquale Tursi. And uh, Pasquale goes to find her 50 years later in Hollywood. And then those two stories sort of go off in a million different directions. Uh, but it's really about, um, it's a romantic story. It's about love, unrequited love, uh, those people who can't be together for whatever reason. And, you know, whether or not someone can affect your life in a really profound way, even though maybe you didn't get to spend your life with them. Even if you only got to spend a few days with them, right? Yes, right. Which is which is what Pasquale and and Dee, you know, in some ways they they become incredibly important people in their lives. And I, you know, I chose Italy sort of haphazardly. My wife is Italian, and we went there on vacation and went to the Cinque Terre, and I just thought it was the most romantic place at the time. Having been a blue collar working class kid, I'd never really been anywhere, and when you descend in a place like that, it sparks the artist in you. And I remember thinking, this is the kind of place you need to write a novel about. Not Spokane, Washington, not the channeled Scablands, not Moses Lake. This is a place of almost inherent romance. And that's what I wanted to try to, to capture. There's a lot of different directions I could go there. But I, I am going to ask, you wrote a book that takes place largely in Italy, having only been there one time. Largely in a place I've never been. Yes, I've never That's lived. That's so interesting yeah. to me because you would think, or at least I would think that if I was going to write about a place, I would really need to have, have it in my blood. And here I spent an entire year in Rome and I still wouldn't necessarily be convinced that I could write Rome well enough to capture it. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, I, you know, and you're right. You couldn't, you know, and I'm sure to, I mean, the book's actually been published in Italian. It's done pretty well in Italian, but I'm sure it feels like moronic, romantic Americans version. You know, one thing about setting the book in the past is it definitely gives you more freedom. You know, there's a famous saying that the past is another country. And more than than the book taking place in Italy, it really takes place in the past. But I'm a journalist by training, and as a journalist, that was my job, was to parachute in some place and be able to write with authority about that place. I love research. I love creating a version of a place, especially in fiction, that doesn't have to adhere to the world as it is, but the world as it could be. And that's one of the great things about fiction is you sit around imagining what could be and uh, trying to create it on the page. Um, And that was what I really set out to do was I invented a village. The village I invented, Porto Vogonia, a port of shame, uh, is, as I describe it, is left over from the days when this little coastal town built into the cliffs over the Ligurian Sea, when this little coastal town was filled with prostitutes for the sailors and fishermen who went by. And now, even though the, the brothels are gone, it's still called Port of Shame. There's a little town north of Genoa called Porto Padocchio, which isn't even really a town, but it was sort of my inspiration, uh, this little scat of a town that uh, that I invented. But it was easier, I think, writing about a place that I had largely invented than it was trying to write about Rome, for instance, you know, which I only visit briefly in the novel. By inventing a town, you didn't have to make it resemble a place in the Cinque Terre. It just had to be a place that was realistically near the Cinque Terre. Exactly. And I, and, and I, you know, and then you could capture the charm of the place. But I also, so we spent about four days there. And I did spend probably, after that, I spent almost a decade working off and on on a novel about a place I'd been for four days. And then I went back um, after finishing a draft and realized I need to research more. And that's one of the one of the great things to do. People sort of assume you write a novel from beginning to end and that you, you know, you start out saying, I'm going to write a novel about the state we arrive at in our lives once our dreams have passed, which is what the novel ends up being about. But you only discover that in the writing. And so going back having this novel and trying to fill it then with life with the real things so then you're just watching what the fish what the fishermen bring in in their catches and uh, what a chef cooks and you know how a schoolgirl walks down the street during a festival you know you're just trying to catch all those things so you can then render them in a book and so going back with um, this idea this fanciful idea and then trying to fill it with real details so that it's almost like an impressionistic painting. You want people to, when they first glance at it, to see, oh, that's a sailboat in a bay. And then the closer they get, um, you realize it's just the artist's movements, his um, brush strokes almost. And, uh, and the great thing about inventing a place is that's the location. The location is in your mind. And that's where it hopefully will live for the reader is in their mind. And was there any difficulty with the historical aspect of it being set in the 1960s? No, I mean, the, the, the time that I set the novel is, is referred to in Italy as Il Boom, which is Italian for the boom, um, which is when, um, <laughs> a, a, after the war, sorry for uh, using my, my vast Italian there, but after the war, there was a moment when Italy sort of joined the modern world because during World War I and World War II, it was, especially in Europe, it was a 
fairly still agrarian, primitive culture. I mean, Rome, of course, was this amazing cosmopolitan place, but much of the countryside especially was still farmers and villagers and fishermen. And so writing it at that time was intentional. The The novel is really about how Hollywood and Italy collided in the 1960s. And I became a fan of Italian cinema, watched Fellini and, you know, a bunch of great directors from the 60s. And, and it was such an amazing, vibrant time to write. You know, the historical part, and, and again, it, it, because it's a novel, it exists almost outside history. It just becomes this vision of the world almost as um, aesthetics more than as the real thing. But if you can paint it with enough of the of those real things, you know, there's a, a character in the novel named Tommaso the Communist because I'd read this huge article about when fishermen and, and farmers started turning toward communism in the 1960s. And so just as simple as that, a simple suggestion from real history, if you turn your novelist mind loose, it can be really fun. Hmm, that's so interesting. I was just reminded of the fact when I was a writing major in college, Yes, I had to take a historical fiction writing class. It was one of those lessons in choose carefully what you're going to write about, because I decided that I was going to write about the painter Modigliani and this rumor that he had lost his virginity to the household maid. <laughs> I was going to explore it from the maid's point of view, but having never been to Italy having no idea about painters, about his time period. It was paralyzing. He leaves the house. What in the world's happening in the street? The amount of research it took was insane. <laughs> Just to have him do anything. And that's the simplest thing is, and especially if you don't speak a language. Yeah, the you start to animate the characters and someone goes outside and he says, good morning, or does he say hello? Or does he say ciao? Or does, you know, um, <laughs> would only a moron say ciao in that situation? You know, the, yeah, you can freeze on the most basic details. And yet I think, I mean, human nature is universal enough that you imagine people say what they say when they leave their house, you know, and the, the difficult thing, and I know you've talked about language on your podcast, which is so great, but trying to, um, when you're writing in, in English, representing Italian, you also owe it to them to, you, I think you owe it to the reader to, even though you're writing in English, to not use English slang. And so you want to try to work some Italian in. And in this novel, I so much of the of the work depends on people not understanding one another, simple misunderstandings. And so I had to represent two Italian people speaking in Italian, sometimes in Italian, sometimes in English, sometimes an Italian person speaking to an English speaker and them not understanding. So I would have to have the miscommunications in English sometimes because for the American reader. And then, of course, if this is being translated into 32 languages, it becomes a kind of hash. Um, and I don't even know how some of the those misunderstandings would have possibly translated. You know, it was sometimes just the very idea of writing in, in about another culture not in their language can freeze you too. Did, did you write when you were in Italy? Did you find yourself pulled toward writing more? I did write a lot when I was there, mainly because I had the time. Yes, <laughs> you right. Know, also, because it was a goal of mine and I had no agenda. Yeah, right. Don't you think there's something about being in another country though too where like your nerve endings are on fire, you're, you're noticing things, you're... You are uh, uh, just so attuned to the world. And I sometimes would 
when I taught writing badly, I would sometimes tell my writing students to pretend you're traveling in a country you don't know. Even if it's the college town you live in, walk around listening to people as if you don't understand their cultures, their culture, their language, their rituals, you know, and I think that's an amazing way to see your own world. And it's interesting that your show is about expats because Every writer, I think, is an expat, even in the place they they live. I think you have to live like that to notice and to really be aware. Otherwise, you take so many things for granted and you miss so much. Yeah, I think that's true. One of the things that I do think that I got out of that time is that I am able to live in the moment a lot more than I was. Really? I think I notice more now because I spent a year of noticing things that other people walk by because they see it every day and I would notice little tiny details and that is the one thing I can say has carried on from coming back is that I still notice details more and so a piazza in in Italy trends I mean do you you find yourself stopping and listening to people watching them in Seattle the same way yeah yeah I'm and looking around or I've always been a person who notices nature a lot and seeing what the birds are doing and those little details are I always used to think that Seattle was a very modern city that wasn't ornate in any way. And then I got back and realized that, no, there are old buildings that have weird faces sculpted into the side of them. Now, they are fewer and far between, but I wouldn't have noticed them before, I don't think. You know, it was fascinating when my when my wife's Italian relatives came to visit us. They came for our wedding. She had these cousins who live in um, Torino, Turin, and uh, they came to visit and we got to watch their video afterward and it was hilarious what they took video of mailboxes and giant yards every time they'd see a giant yard you know because they lived in a little apartment and um and then they went to vegas and just took video of everything you know and and it's funny to not think of seattle as ornate because i'm stunned every time i go to seattle at the new money that's going in there i i at the Amazon headquarters, you know, which is a different kind of ornate. It's a kind of utilitarian decadence almost, you know, there, but there's, I mean, there aren't the palaces and um, architectural ruins of, of Europe, obviously, but there's this other kind of decadence that I find just fascinating. It seems equally historic in some way. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, Tiffany, when her relatives came, one of the things that they got the best video of is squirrels. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. There aren't any squirrels in Rome. So it is a very odd creature that is very interactive with you a lot of the time that we have in the United States. That would make a great children's book, <laughs> The Last Squirrel of Rome. The Last Squirrel of Rome, yeah. I mean, that's sort of what I love about Southeast Asia is that Obviously, we're all humans. We all express the same emotions. But I found that the way that they expressed things in Vietnam were so different than how we would express it. So if I was affectionate toward you as a friend, I might give you a hug and in the United States, right? But in Vietnam, and a lot of the kids I hung out with were kids that worked on the streets. Rather than hugging me, they were they would like punch me or try to knock me over. But it was the same the same affection. It was that sort of rough and tumble love and hugging there would be just you know what are you what are you doing to me it's just maybe my brother and i are are southeast asian then because we've we've yet to ever hug but we will punch each other with love all the time (laughs) see there you go i know my arms were so bruised by the end of one week once i'm like well at least they like me um 
I want to circle back to something that you talked about about the book earlier, which is that these relationships that can form from brief interactions. I mean, so much of traveling or so much of being a person who lives in a foreign country briefly is exactly that. These people you meet on the train or an interaction that you have in one day that somehow sticks with you. Have you had a lot of experiences with that or was it an idea that you were interested in? You know, it's more an idea I was interested in. The I was amazed at how much the language barrier kept me from really making those connections. Um, when I went back the second time, I met a whole bunch of young writing students whose English was so profoundly good and, and writers, you know, whose English allowed us to communicate at a level I take for granted in English all the time. And in Italian, on a good day, I spoke like a brain-damaged three-year-old, you know. <laughs> yes, more coffee in my please. <laughs> I, it was a hash of just, I want this, where is this, um, thank you, you're welcome, goodbye, you know. And I remember the first thing that my wife communicated in Italian that seemed representative or metaphorical. It was something like, in America, uh, molto tutti um, nuovo, you know, everything is new or something. I just hashed all that up too. But, you know, in Italy, everything is old, vecchio, you know. So, and I remember admiring that because it was, uh, it was an abstract thing that she'd gotten across to someone. That in America, everything is new and Italy, everything is old. But it seemed so much beyond my level of communication, which was, um, how much is that pizza? You know, I could only point at things and reference them, you know, and if the thing wasn't in front of me, then I was worthless. And it was still so terrible. But I met these writers, these Italian writers who were fans of my work and had studied me a little bit and they, and they knew Don DeLillo, one of my favorite writers. And we talked in this you know, we had these amazing conversations and they told me things about being young and living in Italy, living in a culture in which you never expect to own a house or the jobs have been gone for young people for so long that it was really, you know, I really felt like I understood a place more than I ever could have, you know, just learning, knowing so little. So I've made those sort of connections when I've traveled other places. Italy, the language is a much bigger barrier for me. And so it was more imagining those things, um, imagining, uh, you know, what a young man who's lived in a town his whole life would make of a beautiful stranger who came across um, him at a certain point in his life, you know. And I think... You know, as novelists, we write from our own backgrounds, but I often think the best stuff comes from, you know, writing into your imagination, into a strong wind of your imagination. But there's a lot of Italian in the book, so how did you pull that off? Well, um, I had, I have, uh, I would show you in my, uh, if you were here in my office, I have all these Italian textbooks and phrase books, and I would put them in brackets because I knew I had to check them all but I would you know do all of that and then I ran them past my sister-in-law first who's Italian is very good and she corrected 
almost all of them. And then I showed an Italian professor, and he corrected almost all of her corrections. And then I showed another Italian translator who corrected almost all of those corrections. And then after the first edition of the book came out, I got an email from another Italian translator suggesting a few other changes. Um, so uh, that part of the book was so alive. I was constantly changing the Italian in it. Um, and because it's so, it's all from your mind, I, I remember writing notes to my Italian professor friend saying things like, how would you say one who fellates goats? You know, and <laughs> he would say, I don't know anyone has ever said that. And, yeah. um, so, you know, you, when you're making things up that way, you're, you're bending the language in a way that it maybe doesn't even work. But there were so many levels of trying to, you know, trying to get the language right. But I have to say, I've, uh, I feel like it's in pretty good shape now. I feel like the last version of it was pretty sound. And if it's not, you have no way of knowing. I would have no way of knowing. <laughs> right. I can barely vouch for the English in the book. I mean, my <laughs> education is so spotty that uh, I, I won't be surprised if you find all sorts of English mistakes. The Italian, <laughs> for all I know, could be Farsi. I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Have you ever talked to um, anybody about what a translated version of one of your books is like? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because I took French in high school, and so I'll sometimes read the French versions, and um, I wish that I'd taken time to have more people say, where is the library, or can I borrow a pen? Because the phrases that I remember just don't seem to appear in the translated, you know. And my next book, I think, is going to be called Où est la bibliothèque? Avez-vous un stylo? Uh, just, so I can, just so I can read the French translation. But, yeah, the... It, it's really interesting reading, you know, talking to people who've read translations. And some of them are great. You know, I have a French translator who insists on having dinner with me when I'm there and um, will send me notes. My Dutch translator sent me probably 40 pages of notes just asking for clarification. I love that. I love that they're working so hard to not just translate the words, but the meaning behind them. And then sometimes the books just appear. And I think, I hope that you know, in Japanese, but I think I'm in 33 or 34 languages now. So yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to know. And I think of that too, as a reader, I don't know about you, but I, there are books that I love to read. Gabriel Garcia Marquez is one of my favorite writers, but having only read him in translation, I wonder, can I even say that? Have you read Elena Ferrante's Italian novels? Mm -mm. No. I read the first one and I thought it was terrific. I loved it. And then I was recommending it and I thought, should I mention the translator's name too? You know, but I thought I, I love the first one. My brilliant friend is one of the great evocations, I think, of female friendship that I've ever read. So if you get a chance, read it. It'll, I think it's really wonderful. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite mystery writers is Henning Mankell. Obviously, that's always in translation, and I often wonder about it. And I mentioned on this show before the book Third Wish, which is in English, written by Robert Fulgham, but Robert Fulgham is ridiculously popular in the Czech Republic. And so one time I asked him, well, what, why the Czech Republic? I mean, here in the United States, he was super famous a few decades ago, and now he's not as well read here. But over there... He puts out a book and they turn it into a play and the play tours the entire area. And so I said, well, what is it about the Czech Republic and your books? And he said, my translator is a better writer than I am. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Which is probably not true, but he just says she's amazing. Well, so my, whatever my, um, she's I've doing. done really well in the UK. So I think <laughs> since I'm, 
I think I must be a really good writer. Yeah, then. yeah. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> They've you used my English translation. English. No, the, that that is a. I do think that is a huge part in it. You know, the you're also writing into those cultures and what they like to read. But yeah, the translator is so important. I'd love to have a translator be a better writer than me. I I would have them translate it back into English again. Well, we'll have to have Claudio read Beautiful Ruins, Tiffany's husband, and see what he thinks. From the Italian point of view. Will you do me a favor? And if he doesn't like it, don't tell me. Just uh, act like he did. We're running out of time. But I I do want to say, I want to ask you one more question. Do you picture yourself as a person who would ever live in another country? I would love to live in another country. I... um, It it was always sort of my plan was... I I am a... uh, father i've been a father for 30 almost 31 years so most of my life i've been a dad and my plan was always at some point to travel and uh i'd i'd love to live a place long enough that i felt like i knew it and yet the older i get the more impossible i believe that might be and so but i'd love to spend two months here three months there i'd love to spend a year in italy it's still that it charmed me in a way that obviously I spent 15 years writing this novel. So it charmed me in a way that I not only didn't expect, but I was shocked that it, I didn't shake it, that it stuck with me for so long. Uh, I mean, you've talked about that on the podcast that, you know, what a, the hold that that place gets on you. And I'd love to open myself up to other places um, and people and see what kind of hold they can get on me. You should um, go back and listen to our episode called Retire and hear from the couple that spent um, a good deal of time figuring out how they could retire to another country. I'm in such denial about my age. Is there one like (laughs) hostels to stay in and traveling as a college student? I'll listen to that one too. Yeah, well, I'm sure we have a lot of episodes like that. Just so I I don't weep about how close I am to retirement. Yeah, I think there is an episode actually, uh, I think it's called Student, I Lose Track, but where we interview a guy who's managed to um, travel around the world with barely any money from one studying program to another for for at least, I think he's on his fourth year now. All those great books, Rome on $10 and things like that. Right, right. Yeah, you just have to make friends there. Can I ask one more question? Yes, of course. Why did it take you 15 years to write this novel? Yeah, it's funny. You were kind of prolific. Everybody heard my bio of you at the yeah, beginning. Yeah, well, it's... So. It, and when I say I spent 15 years on it, it makes it sound like I spent 15 years locked away in an office torturing <laughs> myself. And in fact, I wrote five other novels in the meantime. But this was the first of my published novels that I started. So I wrote the, I started this one, published five others, and I, every time I would publish one, I would come back to it. And part of it, honestly, was probably not knowing Italy well enough, you know. But the book also takes place in Hollywood, in um, Edinburgh, Scotland. It it sort of skips all over the world. And the book traveled with me over those years. Um, As I became a writer and started to publish in places, I would, the characters would go all the places I went. And so each section, I worked in Hollywood, I uh, went to London, Edinburgh, and the novel went with me. But for 14 years, I failed at it. I uh, and it's the tricky thing about being a writer. The hardest thing to explain is that you go in not knowing if it's going to work, if you're going to finish it, if anyone's going to read it. Um, and the best case scenario is a book like Beautiful Ruins, where you finally finish it and people come to it and enjoy it and are touched by it in some way. But you don't know that going in. And so for those 14 years, 
you write with something like faith, like blind faith, that it'll mean something, it'll become something. I finished two drafts that were terrible that I couldn't publish. And then finally, in I finished a book called The Financial Lives of the Poets, which couldn't have been more different than this one, really fast and funny. And I thought, I want to go back to this thing and see if I can deepen it and fill it out. Um, and that's when I took the trip back to Italy. And that's when the whole book kind of felt possible again. And from that point, it still took another two and a half years to finish. So it just takes a long time. Wow. Where's the title come from? What's Beautiful Ruins? Initially, I... So uh, for people who don't know the book, Richard Burton is a character in the novel. It takes place during the filming of Cleopatra in 1962 and 63 in Rome. And he's a minor, sort of a minor character, sort of an important one. And um, he had started to exist over the novel as this almost like talisman. His ambitions and appetites, his self-destructiveness um, became something that I saw in all the other characters. And the more I researched him, the more he started to feel like what the book was about in some weird way. And so I saw a description of him in his 50s as a beautiful ruin. And I've never had a title do this, but I lost my breath and I opened the, the file and I typed in big letters across the top, beautiful ruins. And I realized every one of the characters was that. They were, they were people who'd had dreams, who had thought they would fall in love and be swept away and become Hollywood movie stars and, and famous um, singers. And now they were older in, by the end of the novel, and they had reached a state of ruination, like, um, you know, like columns in Rome that have been ground down to nothing but teeth, you know. And, but they had a kind of dignity and beauty that they didn't have before when they were shiny and new. They had lived these lives and had come around to realize what was important and what it meant. And that phrase, the paradox of those two things, I love juxtaposing words that wouldn't seem to go together and beautiful ruins seemed to me to describe the book in such a way and it was amazing when I looked through I realized the book is made of artifacts here's a little bit of a play here's a little bit of a novel which are ruins themselves they're uncompleted chapels and churches and um and to have the book made of its own ruins seemed to me it seemed like this amazing accident that I'd come across that title well I can highly recommend it so well, I hope you ruins. do. Thank you. And I recommend Just... the podcast. We'll do a double recommendation. Okay, good. We'll spread it around the world. Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, it Katie. It was good to talk to you. It was good to talk to you. We'll have to Another do it again time, sometime. I hope. Yes, I know. Well, we were before we got started, we were talking about possibly doing a podcast about um, expat writers. So maybe we'll do that sometime. I'll study up. Yeah, maybe you should become one before we have that conversation. I yeah, I am one. I'm. I think I'm really from Italy, and I've just been stuck in Spokane, <laughs> Washington, for fifty years. You may be right. All right. Well, this is the Bittersweet Life, and until next time, I'm Katie Sewell. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for all the ways you support us. Give us a good rating on iTunes, maybe five stars if you like the show. It will help other people discover that we exist. Thank you. You're the best. <laughs> <laughs>